this is Alyssa DeVere, and I just had the greatest time talking with Ryan Fullen about how to use the brain science of confidence to totally own and rock the stage. And I'm hoping that you're going to enjoy it as much as we did. My book is Kick-Ass Confidence, and that's any hint. So have fun. Hope to see you soon. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. Ahoy, everyone. It is Ryan Fullen, and I am back with another fun episode of World of Speakers. And today, I have a tech genius. Ladies and gentlemen, she's not only a tech genius, but she is the chief confidence officer of the American Confidence Institute. Her book, which is number six, and she's working on seven, is called Kick-Ass Confidence. Ladies and gentlemen, Alyssa DeVere. Welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm psyched. No one ever calls me a tech genius, at least in my house. All right. I'm glad we have it on tape now. Yeah, it's definitely recorded. It is out there in the world. And the reason why she's a tech genius is because we just spent the last five minutes with her as an IT tech person, self-diagnosing, figuring out her own computer system, diving into the matrix, not giving up, and basically fighting until she was able to hear me. And that says a lot about you and your personality. Oh, that's kind of the definition of a speaker, fighting till somebody listens to you, right? It's all good. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, or just uh, continuing to speak until you are heard. And that's what we're going to talk about today is basically how you have found the stage as a way to share your message, some of the tips that you've got for our speaker listeners, and then how you leverage the stage to spread your solution, which is hopefully solving a big problem out there. Now, my guests know that uh, I don't really do much of a cyber stock other than really just kind of verifying that you are a, an awesome speaker that speaks all around the world. So I want to get to know you a little bit. And the best way to get to know people is story time. So if I were to ask you, instead of reading off a bio or instead of going through your accolades, take a time travel back and tell us a story from your past. And if that was the only story that I was able to hear or that I was able to tell somebody that it would probably be a good representation of who you are as a person and kind of what you stand for and what you're all about. I love it. So starting out as a marketer, I was attracted to that industry because it was rich with motivational theory and all this cool you know, brain stuff that we knew back in the dark ages when I graduated. And I really pursued that full-fledged for many years, Ryan. I was uh, head of marketing for a number of tech companies, so that's where the tech genius comes from. But needless to say, for many years, I felt like it really wasn't my thing in totality. And as the digital age came upon us and marketing became much more focused on analytics and kind of explaining things through data, while I could do it and I, did, I appreciated it, I loved it even less. So I was always kind of on this path to look for something that still had the, the juicy stuff about the marketing world, but find a different way to kind of explore it in a career. And I decided to do this study on my own. It was kind of on a whim because I kept finding that women in particular in business had this funny thing that they kept doing, which was asking for opinions and apologizing all the time. I'm like, what's up with that? And it turned into a book, which was my fifth book, actually, called Misinformed. 
Ms. Like Ms. Ms. Informed. Yeah, like Ms. Informed. Right. I have a feeling we're gonna have fun because I like to make up words, and the fact that you just threw out that was pretty punny. So I think we're on a good spot. I see. I'm I'm learning a lot about you already. All right. So Ms. Informed. Ms. Informed. I'm gonna send you the book because the whole thing's one big pun. New York kind of um, humor. That's where I'm from originally, and and this and the other. So that was out in the universe, and somehow caught the attention of some really good people that I'll come back to in a minute. But needless to say, I was doing that kind of as an exploration hobby almost. And about, I guess it was a year after the book came out, my son, who is now 19, but at the time was about eight, was diagnosed with a very serious neurological condition. You know, I can tell the story now and I do it every time I'm on the stage with, you know, restricted emotion in the sense that I've told I've told it so many times that. I know what I'm going to say, but I will tell you, my heart still races every time I tell it because it was that moment where my confidence as a mother, as a human being, like, what did I do to deserve this? What did my child do to deserve this? Really, really got punched. Now, fast forward a couple of years as we went through absolutely torturous treatments, things that were debilitating to him, things that as a parent, I would never wish on anybody including injecting poison as in Botox into my child only to watch him scream in agony every couple of months. I finally, you know, kind of decided that there had to be a better way and really dug into everything I could find on the internet and so forth because the medical community just wasn't giving me good answers. And again, a fast version of this story is that I found a guy that had moved from Spain to Toronto, where my business partner is. She was one of the people that found Misinformed and kind of said, I want to do some work with you because this is really cool stuff. And so I happened to be going to see her. I went, brought my son with me on this trip. The whole thing has this whole karma wrapper around it because the timing and the coincidences are quite frankly um, hard to explain otherwise. And I learned about this thing called neuroplasticity which is the ability to change your brain. And at the time, again, this is many years ago, when I would talk to the neurologist about that, they thought I was nuts. You know, it can't be, you're, you know, this is hooey, it's, you know, Eastern meditation at its best, and yada, yada. Well, over the last five years, we have seen an explosion in brain science in general, but particularly on this area of neuroplasticity. And I'm happy to report last week, that same doctor, the one that I had found up in Toronto is a medical doctor and a musician and everything but a neurologist, did a lecture. He did his first lecture for the Harvard Medical School because I'm not so nuts. It actually does work. And not only was my son, I want to say cured, but certainly he is doing fabulous. He's a killer tennis player. He's going to college and he's fully functional. Everything's great. We've helped thousands of other people. But it also kind of rocked my world back to what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I said, you know what? This is where my passion lays. It lays in understanding motivation, how people work, how the brain works, bringing it to a stage, putting it in books, delivering programs that really help other people take advantage of this incredible science, but at the same time, making it accessible to anybody. Wow. Okay. So I learned a lot from you in that story and three words came out. Resilient, relentless, reflective. Oh. Yes. So relentless and the fact that you found what I wrote down, getting 
not getting good answers. And I think there's an interesting point to that because there are always answers, especially in this digital age. It's like there's an answer for everything, but you weren't happy with the answers. And then this idea that like there was a restricted emotion. Your words are very colorful, by the way. You're, you're an artist here with your words. You're, um, you're word painting for me. But this idea of like restricted, but not being satisfied with the status quo and quote unquote being punched, like punched with what's happening. I think there's such a, a visceral way to put it. But then you basically were both resilient and relentless but use those two things to become reflective. And it sounds like you're not only taking this for you and your family, but you're it's the opposite of selfishness. And you're out there basically saying, look, I've discovered a new magic bean that I plant and it goes up to the clouds in a place where people aren't looking. And then now you're basically helping to empower people with their words. So that's my take on it. What do you think? Is that pretty accurate for you as a person there? Well, thank you from one visual artist to another. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm grateful for that compliment. You know, I think what has been the, the greatest pleasure is not only does it, yes, help people in real terms. In other words, when I do keynotes or I do workshops, people come away with real tools and all that. But I get to speak to MIT and Harvard and Wharton and pharmaceutical people and financial people, all different people from walks of life that we often look at, we see as, quote, confident people. And yet the reality is that life is hard for everybody. So my story was really hard for me. It's hard for me to even believe that, you know, it happened and we got over it. But at the same time, I don't go out necessarily as a way of saying to people, oh, you know, my life's harder than yours. Now, everybody's life is hard. And if we as human beings and speakers, of course, can help people not only feel comfort that their life is, you know, we all have our struggles and challenges, but give them some real tools, not just stories, quite frankly, Ryan, because there's a lot of stories out there right now, TED Talks and otherwise, but give them some science, give them some science-based tools, templates, tips that really make a difference. It's hard for me to argue that there's anything else in the world I should be doing. That's interesting. I like the consciousness of the fact that it's not just a story and the awareness that everyone has their own story. Obviously, stories connect, but it is dangerous to have a story that is positioned in a way where people might think that it's worse than theirs. But there's no, it's all relative, right? At the end of the day, like um, I have a friend whose dog is going through some issues with cancer and it's like, that's his kid. So it's like, it's all relative. And this idea of just focusing on the fact that we all have the stories, but it's really, if you want to empower that story, you've got to add to it. And you're talking about tools, science, tips, templates, all that kind of stuff. So is that, that is your mission is to take your story as a foundation to connect and create these tools, tips, templates, and tricks for people to what, to, to essentially gain more confidence or to heal themselves of illnesses, or is it a a catch-all? What would you say there? Well, very clearly. So Yes, I'm agreeing with what you're saying, but I want to clarify. So, you know, people come to me all the time, other speakers, story people who want to write books, and they want to write their bios or, you know, they, they have this, they say, I have a great story. You know what? That's great. My story's great too. Your story's great. It's all great. But my story is just the explanation for me why I got into this. Why, as somebody who's not a neuroscientist, not a social scientist, and not a psychologist, I'm not even you know, really a coach. I do some coaching, but I don't consider myself a coach. I'm not any of those labels, but what I am is somebody who has taken all this very complex information, motivated 
both in terms of my intellectual and maternal needs, and gone back and done the additional research with all these brilliant people to validate it, and subsequently now have the ability to give everyday people some hands-on tools so that when you go back to work, no matter what it is, or you're standing, you're about to go on stage, or you're having dinner with your in-laws, which can be equally confidence crushing, right? <laughs> uh, confidence crushing. Hashtag confidence crushing. So I'm gonna put a I'm gonna put a Twitter call out to anybody. Anybody has a confidence crushing situation that you want to share, then definitely share that. Tag me at Ryan Folland. I'm assuming you're on Twitter. Oh yes, 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 yes. I love that hashtag. Where where do people find you on Twitter so that we can start a confidence crushing conversation? Oh, I love it. So it's kick a confidence. Kick <laughs> okay. a confidence because we couldn't put kick ass confidence. It was too long. Right, right. You got to be PG there. Yeah. Okay. So so tell me more about this confidence crushing across the board. Whether it's in laws, whether it's uh, life threatening, whether it's this. Well, so you had asked me about target market, right? As we were prepping for this. And one of the qualifiers that I I like to say now, of course, everybody in the world can use some more confidence. We all can. Some of us admit it more than others. Different conversations for a different day, perhaps. But my particular niche, because I bring the science forward, has real appeal in what I call intellectually competitive environments. So people who go to work or go to school in places where they're constantly having their smarts challenged, right? Where you look around and you go, everybody here is smart. And the only way for me to compete, to succeed, to be promoted, to get a raise, whatever it might be, to get an A, is to show that I'm smarter than everybody else. And so what happens is it creates all kinds of havoc in your brain. In fact, it actually can damage neural pathways in a permanent, when I say permanent, in a relatively permanent, you can actually undo them. But we don't even know what's happening where we start doing behaviors, things that I qualify as business bullying. I'll give you an example, Ryan, and I'm sure you've had people on your show. I hope I'm not one of them that is the classic smartest person in the room, (laughs) right? You say something, they always have to say something a little bit better. Maybe they want up you. Yeah, one-uppers. Yeah, we. I'm not going to name it, but we have somebody, just a, a family friend, and we call him one-up blank, like whatever his name is. And <laughs> just no matter what you say, even if I told him that, he'd be like, yeah, but you know what? I know somebody who, <laughs> you're just <laughs> you so one-upping. One up, so one-ups, you know, like kind of a version of the smartest person in the room or somebody who just has to correct somebody else or is always disagreeing with because they have to portray themselves as smartest person in the room. Now, in our heads, we do this quick, like, oh, the guy's doing it again, kind of, you know, we say, oh, here he goes again. But it does kick us in the confidence, literally. And, and many people subsequently go into what we call caveman mode, right? They go, go into survival mode with, and without giving a whole brain lesson on a podcast, it literally is that they've lost control of their brain processes, their brain stem, which is responsible for all your autonomic, your literally the body functions you don't have to think about, breathing, sweating, heartbeat, so forth. That's the part of the brain that takes over. That's what cavemen had. That's what we have when we first come out of our parents, you know, we were when we're born. And needless to say, the rest of the room starts acting a little like cavemen too. When we start beating our chest saying, oh, wait a minute, I'm the smartest person in the room. Now, here's the reality. The person who does that, the, the, um, it, I think it's a guy you referred to, right? Yes, we'll, we'll call him One Up John Doe. Okay, One Up John Doe. Now, One Up John Doe doesn't probably know he's doing this either, but it's a form of bullying, right? It's yeah. trying to make other people feel less good about themselves, if you will. 
so that he can feel better. It is a form of bullying, but we're so darn used to it that we kind of accept it. And then we get defensive. We go into that caveman mode. And so it is just confidence crushing all the way around. Now, I think it also has a belittling aspect to it. So belittling and bullying. So it's maybe belittling. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Belittling, right? Right. And then you also said something before, and I don't know if you said it on purpose, but you said when somebody like One Up John Doe actually does this and they are belittling you, it kicks you in the confidence. But I heard you say in the confidence, like the confidence. <laughs> <laughs> So like, it's like you're, if your confidence had an ass and somebody were to one-up you by bully littling them, they're actually like kicking you in the confident ass. <laughs> Someone's going to listen to this, my friend, and be like, that editing job just was weird. <laughs> yeah. No, no, this is real. This is not edited. And it's funny you talk about this. I'm very passionate about this. My first TEDx talk is called How to Not Get Chased by a Bear. And it actually is talking about this caveman syndrome where everything we see oftentimes presents itself as a bear and we react to it like it's a bear. So, you know, somebody one up and you could definitely be a bear and then you react to it and then it creates a negative feedback loop and everybody's just like, rawr, caveman. <laughs> it is. It's exactly what it is. So again, not to get into deep brain science, but you kind of have led me down that bear path. Sorry, my friend. Yeah. Bear path is good. There is a part of our brain that actually is looking for anything that's going to harm us. It's called the amygdala. And harm can be physical bear, or it could be John Doe one-upping, because yeah. emotional harm is also what it looks for. And at that moment where it senses that something's potentially harmful, it either is going to send you into caveman mode. In psychology, we say fight or flight, right? It's kind of like rash, responsive reaction is what it is. And that's what the brainstem does in a good way in most cases. You know, jump off, you know, go back on the curb because you're about to hit by the bus. Yeah, don't die. <laughs> right, don't die. But when it's an emotional situation like one up Johnny or smartest person in the room or whatever it might be, where you're like, whoa, this guy's going to make me look stupid, or I may fail, or I may regret what I'm about to do. The biggie, which most people don't recognize, actually harkens back to 1940s research of Mr. Abraham Maslow, if there's any fellow Maslow lovers out there, that when we feel like somebody's not going to like us, when we don't belong, when they make us feel like we're an outsider or we just don't fit in, that's like one of the biggest triggers for caveman behavior because our amygdala just goes bananas. And so, again, we don't necessarily recognize this in everyday world, but this goes back to all this research and science that I bring when I teach people how to manage those triggers by really strengthening your brain pathways to not lose it into the brainstem. And this is a great transition because I think one of the biggest bears in the room is when people have to speak in front of other people. I mean, that's just classically the biggest bear. And even to the emotional bear, this invisible bear, when somebody might not believe in you or it's your time to go up and speak and they give this one up Paul or after the fact, they're like, yeah, he did really good, but I saw somebody else. Like, So I'd love to transition into some tips for people when it comes to public speaking, how they can get past that bear, how they can train their brain. What are the tips, tactics, tools, and templates for them to basically up their emotional intelligence 
to feel more comfortable on stage and maybe realize the emotions that they're going to go through as they develop their skills as a speaker. Because the thing I love about speaking is that you always can get better, right? (laughs) It's like the bar is always being raised. And so you're always going to have people better than you. You're always going to feel intimidated. It's a process. So how can we use your brain science to give some tactical tips to our speaker listeners about dealing with the bear that is public speaking? Well, you know, it's I love this question. I very recently, in fact, did the Boston Toastmasters keynote, right? And so these questions are all real fresh in my brain and some of the tactics. And I remember when I gave this tip and everybody looked at me like, are you kidding me? So I can't see your face, let alone anyone who's listening to this podcast. But trust me, this is the most important tip that I got as a speaker. It changed the way I work and I can explain it neurologically, which is this. When you go to speak, forget about yourself. Because the reason you're there to speak is not to show off. You're there to change an audience in some way, to educate them, entertain them, make them forget about their problems, improve themselves. Whatever your purpose is there being there, you're there to do a job, but it's all about your audience. And I know it sounds almost pedantic, Ryan, but if I am prepared and I really know my stuff, which I do, and of course, most speakers, you know, are going to rehearse and do a good job. My job is to really connect with the audience. And if I worry about them and not so much what they're thinking about me, my focus shifts. My need to belong and fit in kind of dissipates because that's not my job. I'm not there to fit in. I'm the speaker. I'm not fitting in no matter what because I'm the speaker and they're not. So the reality is this. There's always going to be people in that audience, better, worse. I don't care who they are. They're not going to love me. That's not my job to make them love me. My job is there to help them fix whatever they're there to fix. In my case, they're there to learn how to manage their confidence. They're there to learn and understand how to drive their behaviors better by having more control of their brain. That's what I'm there to do. I'm the expert in that. I know I'm the expert in that. I don't need any more than that to stand on the stage and give you the information. If for some reason somebody's in that audience and they want to be a curmudgeon because there's always going to be one or two. There's only so much I can do. I don't care if I'm standing there naked juggling fireballs <laughs> out my confidence. <laughs> confidence. <laughs> there you go. Well, hey, you know what my facial reaction is to not necessarily the last part about you, uh, you know, that juggling fire, but the idea of the fact that you don't matter, it's really the audience that matters. My facial reaction would look something like this. Bam, 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 bam. Okay. Is that good? (laughs) (laughs) It is. It is good. It's the, the horn that's going off in my head that, you know, I've heard a version of that advice a few different ways and it never gets old because the idea of being nervous is tied to selfishness because you're worried about what they think. And you're saying, who cares? Like you, you use the word curmudgeon. I don't know what it is, but I picked it up in context. It's my new favorite word. Like there's always going to be these curmudgeon people out there who are naysayers or the one up John Doers and stuff like that. But if you forget about them and you're saying like the opposite of selfishness is speakerness. It's speakerness. I love that. Opposite. Yes. And you know what? There could be an audience of 100 people. If you're like changing the lives of five, you've had a great day. I'm not saying that you've totally succeeded because you certainly don't want to fail the, the 95 others. But go in with the attitude that you have something to offer. That's why you've been asked to speak, for crying out loud. And stop yeah. worrying about your hair or what you're wearing. I mean, yes, you want to look presentable and all that, but leave it you know, at home in terms of your attitude and go there with, 
I got to bring it. You know, one of the greatest honors hasn't even happened officially yet, but I got asked to speak this fall for the U.S. Air Force, right? Nice. And I'm sitting there going, what the hell do I know about the Air Force? I don't know anything about the Air Force. Like, I'm so far removed from that world. But I asked the folks there, and, and in particular, that's the recruiters that wanted to hear my talk. And I said to them, well, why? Well, like, what do I have to offer you guys? You know, like, not that I'm not being confident. I'm just missing something here. They're like, every single day we have to go and present ourselves. We have to present the opportunity why to join the Air Force to people. And we know that based on what we've seen of your work, you can help us do that better. And I thought to myself, that's right. That's what I do. I help people be better, whether they're presenting on a stage or in a sales situation, because when they feel good about what they're going to do, they all that other self selfishness, like you said, it melts away. So we could do a whole show on just on that one tip, but yeah. that kind of changed my world first and foremost. I hope. Hashtag be better. Yeah, I dig this. So basically not being selfish is, is a magical tool. What are some of the other challenges that you solve for speakers who are in the process of really honing in and sharpening their brain skills? Are there any mind hacks or are there any special tricks or tips from a mind standpoint that we can tap into as speakers to up our speaking game? Absolutely. So there's this really awesome, easy thing that athletes, professional athletes, actually some of the sharpshooters in the military use it too, is called structure. That's the technical name. If you have your uh, psychologist, for example, a structure, and it can be anything, right? And it can be a piece of like a song. It can be a picture. It can be a lucky charm. It can be even just a memory, but something that you can go to quickly and remind yourself that you're friggin' awesome. Hmm. And it doesn't even have to be friggin' awesome on the stage, but that you are really a great person that you do something that's really great, gets that dopamine fired up in your brain very quickly. When um, I do some of my programs, I tell people, you know, set up a folder on your phone or laptop, you know, get a Dropbox folder or, you know, any of your favorite tools out there, there's a hundred of them and stick in there. Some of the photos that when you look at, just make you smile, like goosebump moments, you know, maybe it was a time you were on the stage where people were really psyched, or maybe it was a family event or your diploma or whatever it is. Pictures. Great. Also grab some of those LinkedIn or other comments, maybe informal recommendations that you get, or just comments from somebody after you've spoken or anything, again, that you've done. It could be a job re- uh, review, anything that basically was feedback that you can look and, and remind yourself, you know what, you're really pretty good. Hmm. And it's a simple thing that is not one of these things. I hate when people give, say, say visualize something. I'm like, no. This is a realistic visualization. This is something that really happened that you can see. It doesn't have to necessarily have to be, it can be a memory, but it's something that actually you can see in your brain that tells your brain you got this. And that neurotransmission will really go wonders. It relates very much to, are you familiar with Amy Cuddy's work on power poses? Yeah, yeah, I am. I've seen the talk and I did a lot of research for my TEDx talk about the bear and, you know, the croc brain and all that kind of stuff. All right. So people have a problem with Amy Cuddy's work in the sense that when I say people, academics, because they're having a hard time reproducing her results, which basically say based on the way you sit or stand, you're going to get positive, if you will, neurotransmission into your brain, the dopamine and endorphins and adrenaline and things that are going to help you kind of like power through that thing. It's going to suppress all the cortisol and other stress hormones that make you nervous. They can't quite reproduce the results. 
doesn't matter because for me, all it is is a structure. If you go to the men's room before you speak and you do a little power pose and it works for you, that's your structure. For me, I go to a quiet place. I do a little Zen. I look at my confidence collection online. I remind myself I can do this. Now, here's like the one that most people use. It's called breathing. <laughs> you take a deep breath. Now, funny enough, if you do yoga or you do any kind of martial arts, the control of the breath is a very common thing. It's also a structure because what you're doing is you're taking an autonomic function, which is breathing, which is controlled by that caveman part of your brain we talked about before called your brainstem. And we're taking control and we're saying, God damn it, I own breathing. <laughs> and I own breathing in my cognitive space, not my brainstem. So again, you are taking control of the brain, you're literally feeding it some positive kind of neurochemicals so that you can remind yourself, you got this. Well, I have to admit that I stood up for a little bit in my Superman pose and uh, I'm feeling a little puff chest and then I took a couple of breaths and I'm I'm ready to go. I'm ready to Whoa. I'm ready to save somebody from a burning building. I'm not sure, but yes, I I'm I'm ready. <laughs> I love it. So like superpower speaker. You're going to have to figure that one out because uh, you know, now you're ready to take on the world. I love it. Yeah, I'm actually in the process of trying to get sponsored by Post-its because I love Post-its and I've been on this active campaign to have them become a let me be a brand ambassador. And speaking of a cape, one of my pitches to them is that if you sponsor me, I will make a cape out of Post-it notes and I will wear it onto stage. And they have these super extreme post-it notes right now. And I'm confident that they will stick together. But I visualize myself running on the stage with a cape of post-it notes. And I definitely will do a few power poses and think of this moment before then, because there's a lot of people who might just absolutely laugh and think I'm ridiculous. But I don't care about what they think, because it's important that they are the ones entertained. Absolutely. Because I'm not selfish. I love it. Because this podcast is revolutionizing with simple advice. And that's what I love about this. One of my favorite concepts, and I I would love your insight on this. Everybody's looking for these hacks and these apps and these tricks and the shortcuts and how do I get to the stage quicker and how do I get my speaker fee faster and how do I do all these things? And I really, truly believe that successful blank. So let's say successful speakers. Successful speakers are not doing things that everyone else cannot do successful speakers are doing what everyone can do, but not everyone does. Ooh, love that. And it's things like breathing. It's things like power posing. It's things like having a structure to go to. It's things like not being selfish. And I'm just curious your thoughts from a chemical and brain standpoint, when it comes to leveling up, do you really feel that we need these dynamic and crazy hacks to fast track things? Or is it, is there truth in the fact that like we all have access of taking an autonomic function and owning it and we have the ability to wake up half an hour earlier in these these little moments and because this is what you've given me you've given me and our listeners little tiny things that every single person can do but that's what's exciting and I think people are looking for these hacks so I'm curious your thoughts on that because I know you're working with people who are trying to up their games right well you know I think there are in some cases legitimate shortcuts right and I think you know, the challenge is, is, is siphoning through the vast amount of bull crap everywhere that subsequently kind of hides some of the gems, right? And so here's another little gem that I think goes to your point, which is you hear all this stuff about, you know, you should have more gratitude and you should be thankful and, and celebrate things. And you know what? Athletes have been doing small win celebrations for two decades now, at least, right? And again, there's some neurological proof now that when you celebrate a small win, 
you, again, infuse the brain with the positive stuff like dopamine and adrenaline. And you say, well, you know, I just did that thing. And it doesn't have to be a master thing, it ha- you know, a major thing. It, ha- it can be a small thing. You know, I didn't fall off the stage this time. Woohoo! It's awesome. <laughs> you know, they didn't throw tomatoes at me. Woohoo! <laughs> but, you know, I think that to some extent, it, you know, what we are, what you did state, and I don't want to lose it in this kind of conversation, is that a lot of things are not shortcuts. And good preparation, doing things a lot to the point where you do master them, whether you're a Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hour kind of person or not, different discussion. But I think there is something to be said for people who like to wing it. And it is very, very, very rare to find anyone who is really a master in anything that will wing it because they make it look easy. It doesn't mean that they haven't practiced and practiced and practiced. And when you are in the the neurological space and you do something enough, you do hardwire those pathways in your brain. So for example, it almost doesn't matter how tired I am anymore. I recognize that I'm tired before I go on stage, but those pathways kick in so clearly that when I'm on stage, it literally is I'm in my zone. When I'm done, I have learned, Ryan, not to book any meetings. I've learned not to do a presentation (laughs) the next day, you know, because I'm intellectually and literally neurologically done. Yeah. And I know that. So, you know, practice and and getting to the point where you really can get into a zone when you have muscle memory kicking in on the, the mechanics of things makes a huge difference, I think, for speakers. And again, celebrating small wins is really important just in the context of if you really are growth minded and you want to improve, you want to get better, you want to um, up your game, so to speak, you know, it doesn't have to happen in big chunks. It can happen in small incremental things that over time really do make a difference. Awesome. So that's actually a great transition into understanding the small and medium and large steps, maybe some of the shortcuts and hacks that you found through all the BS to get to stages like speaking at the Air Force and being a keynote at at major Toastmasters events, because there's one side of the speaking fence, which is the skills and the expertise and the knowledge. And, and those are very much these things that everyone can do. Sometimes you just have to put in the time. And like you mentioned, there's legitimate shortcuts. But what are some of the pieces of advice or personal experiences that you've had to fast track or to shortcut to get to these larger stages? And in the same respect, you know, what are some of those standard things that everyone can do that maybe they're not doing? All right. Well, so there's a reality check here. When I started speaking 10 years ago or so, and I say 10 years, I wasn't doing it full time or needlessly all the time for money. However, the world has changed so much in the last, I want to say two years that because everybody's woken up and go, what a great opportunity to generate leads, to do branding, both for the company and for the speaker, personal branding, right? So the competition has gotten crazy. My competition is no longer other, quote, professional speakers. My competition is the VP of AI technology for blah, 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 blah company. Right. It almost doesn't matter what space they're in. If they have a big title at a big company, they can be the world's most horrendous speaker, but that's my competition in many cases. And that's what everybody is facing these days is free corporate funded competition. So finding money to get paid as a speaker has gotten very hard. Doesn't mean it's impossible, but I want people to realize if you're having a hard time, that's partly or largely the reason why it may not even be because you're doing something wrong. It's just hard. Now, with that said, the more you do, the more portfolio you do, the better videos you put out there, 
And, you know, I, I'm on my third video. It's about to come out in the next couple of weeks because you have to continue to get better and show people that you're better. Like you said, you can always be a better speaker, but being a good speaker is the foundation, right? You got to be good. You got to have good material. You got to deliver well. You got to have good marketing materials. Do you have to have $4 million worth of it? No, but you do have to invest both time and money to make yourself, make it provable that you're good. I have a very unique spot, a unique niche, if you will. It helps. It helps. If I were just a motivational speaker, if I was a sales trainer, you know, there's a bazillion people out there doing that. You really have to have a niche. And, you know, there's a lot of people who want to sell stuff to speakers that will tell you to pick a very specific market, really do deep dive marketing on it. Absolutely. But you better have something that's unique and special and or that you have a lot of marketing. You know, your numbers is what's driving the business. Now, back to what you talked about originally, you were saying that, you know, your story is really the, it just makes me think of like, the door that opens you to be able to explain why you're on stage. But when you're on stage, you have to back that up with the research and the expertise and the time and all of that investment. And so there's this, uh, let's say, the stage gap, right? Where, you know, it's one thing to have your story and become passionate and know what you want to talk about. So you get inside of the room. But then the next step to the stage, you have to have all those that expertise. But there are there any things that you found personally that have worked? Do you leverage personal relationships? Are you big onto the social media marketing? Do you do you know paid Facebook advertising? Are there any tricks that you've used to sort of combat this crazy excess supply of speakers? As you said, the the free corporate big title speakers. So yes, all of it. I do all of it, but. Still, the best source for my paid speaking is referrals. Somebody who saw me, heard me on something like your podcast or saw me live, that's always the best referral. And I'm starting to believe that applying for any call for applications, call for speakers is a moot point because, again, the competition and the, the noise that's created from that. Yeah, if somebody looked at my thing, they'd probably be very impressed. And if it fit their event, so on and so forth, but the likelihood that they're actually going to take the time to do that is so minimal that I'm doing less and less of that these days and really relying on my referral base. So what do I do? I stay in touch with people. You know, it's, yes, social media, yes, it's email, but I actually call and email people directly that I know are influencers in an organization or target market that I know is particularly good for me. So, you know, good old fashioned relationship building and, and keeping it not just making a contact, right? Just because we're friends on Facebook doesn't mean we're real friends. So you, know, you got to build those relationships and you kind of stoke them just like you would a real friend. And one thing I would assume is that your confidence is a big part of that. So maybe you can share with us how to attain that kick-ass confidence. What are, like if, if you were to do a high level, three main takeaways from this book, your most recent one, because it sounds like the relationship, I think that's pretty straightforward, right? You, you're building relationships. But I believe there's still even a certain amount of confidence to go out there and, and say, yeah, I am a speaker. This is what I'm doing. How do you help people build the confidence to build the relationships that will actually form the t- kind of relationships that will lead to referrals? Listen before you talk. 
Listen before you talk. What? No, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you know what? We're so busy trying to tell people stuff. And, you know, I, I'm sure you've had this experience. I posted stuff too. It's a natural behavior. You almost want to think about what you want to say next and you're not really listening, right? You can't help it. And we do that in natural language, natural relationships. But if you really want to build confidence in yourself, confidence in the other person very quickly, listen to them. Ask questions first. And then tell them your story. Apply it to something that they care about. Apply it to something that they go, oh, I can relate to that. A story on its own is not as powerful unless somebody can relate to it. So figure out how to do that. And the only way you can do that is to listen first and speak late after. Yeah, I love that. One of my favorite things to do is to get people to ask me questions. And the concept is the more you talk, the less people actually are going to listen. And the less you talk the more they'll actually ask questions. And so I've got this 313 method that I help people in the conversational, when somebody asks you what you do or you're not sure and you're, you're in that spot trying to build a relationship. And one of my favorite things, and I, I think there's a lot of brain psychology and I think we could geek out on this later, but I have this, I guess, this vision that no one really cares what you do. They care about the problem that you solve. And so if somebody asks you what you do and you just tell them what you do, they're secretly waiting for you to finish telling them what you do so they can tell you what you do, what, what they do. And then you're just waiting for them to finish saying what they do so that you can continue on <laughs> on your way, right? It's like people are talking, but nobody's listening. And so a fun trick that I have people do, and I'd love for you to like think of this from the psychological level. When somebody asks me what I do, I look at them and I'm just like, it sounds funny, but it's not what I do that's important. And that flips the whole conversation. And they're like, huh? They say, well, it's, it's the problem that I solve. That's what I'm excited about. That's what I'm passionate about. That's what I, there's a lot of versions. And then they'll be like, well, what problem do you solve? And then I tell them the problem. And, and, and it's a way of sort of gearing the conversation to create intrigue and interest by just physically saying less. <laughs> and that way they have to ask you more questions. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting approach. I love that. I think you need to patent that. I don't know what to call it off the top of my head, but I'm going to work on that. Yeah, well, I call it permission-based pitching, oh, and it's great. part of this three one three, and and that's all trademarked and everything. That's that's what I speak you on. I step ahead of me. I love it. Yeah, I geek out on this idea of you know we talk about relationships, we talk about connecting with people, but when you put two real people in a room together and there's like nothing else, like <laughs> that interaction when people are actually communicating like face to face, that's so fascinating to me, and I think that there's a lot of problems that people have within there. But again, it goes back to what we talked about in the beginning, right? If you approach a stage or a relationship or anything else of interactivity with other people as saying, I have some stuff that I think I can help people with, but I can't help you unless I'm focused on you first. I'm not, yeah. I'm not worried what you think about me. I'm not worried about, you know, if I'm impressing you, what I want to worry about first is in a relationship, we both have to feel that there's value. We also have to both have appreciation for our value, each other's values, right? So the only way you get, get to that place is through listening. Now, you don't have to listen to me necessarily, but if I come to the relationship with, hey, Ryan, like, tell me a little bit more about you. What, what do you need? What are you looking for? You know, I'm in, in so many ways gathering information. Then when I come back to you to present to you or to pitch to you or to converse with you, I'm going to make it more relevant to what I heard you need. You got some conversational ammunition right there. Oh, yeah. Well, ammunition, yeah. I don't know if I want to make it so aggressive this one time. Yeah, I'm a kick-ass kind of girl, but 
in reality, I think that that that's what, you know, when you look and study what makes people confident, quite frankly, I have a hang up about this phrase self-confidence because they're truly confident people are not so concerned about themselves. They're concerned about how do I help other people in a way that we both get value out of it. Ooh, I like that. Say that one more time for the record book. All right. Because I just like it. Right. I just want people like to hear it. it again. So the truly confident people are not so self-obsessed with themselves, that they really are what motivates them, that drives them, is how do we bring value to each other? And so subsequently, they're focused on other people as much, if not more, than themselves. Awesome. And I'm going to replace my word ammunition with valuation. Here we go. We're, we're creating a whole new Here we go again. today. I love it. I actually have a Ryan Fullen Dictionary Word Doc that I just keep dumping words into. So valuation is like having the ammunition, but not in a not in a gun sense at all. It's just like this plethora of value that you can then basically deliver to people. And I think this all is coming full circle because your original story is that you were relentless in finding an answer that was better than good, that was great. And essentially that situation with your son, you know, you are listening to people on stage. The doctor is on stage telling you you're the audience member. And you had a unique thing to be like, as an audience member, like, I'm not accepting this. This is not good. And the true doctor that is actually listening to his audience, the speaker who is listening to the audience, the person who's trying to build a relationship, who's listening to that other person to find out what really it is that is a great answer for them, you can then have this valuation that you can return in favor selflessly from the stage, from behind the curtain, from the doctor's office. And that idea is that you're confident enough to make it not about you. You're confident enough to listen and find value so that it is about everyone else and you're confident to do that. That's kick-ass confidence right there. Hey, Ben, brother. Love it. Love it. Awesome. Well, I think I want to go stand and do a power pose and then I want to go <laughs> out there and, and do something. I'm going to start a Google Drive folder because that's my preferred technology of my confidence cards. Can I say that? Like, is there a phrase that you have for these little bits of information? To Yeah, to- well, we call it a confidence collection. Okay, so I'll put some confidence cards in my confidence collection and create some sort of a structure so I can pull back when when one up John Doe is uh, is doing his thing. I can think back to my Google Drive, maybe access it on my phone, sort of reset the amygdala so that I'm back on board. Maybe another power pose, and then go kick some ass. Yeah, and well, awesome. If nothing else, just remember he's acting a little bit like a caveman. We call that in our book bonehead behavior. And so maybe you'll giggle a little inside, <laughs> not let him in on the secret and just go, man, you're acting like a jackass. It's okay. Go for it. I'm not going to fall for it. And that, that in and of itself kind of saves some face, particularly when you're with your in-laws. <laughs> Tons of fun. Well, make sure that you shoot me this misperception or whatnot, and then I'm going to check out your book. If somebody wants to find you, where's the best way to point them? Where do they, where do they find you online? Okay, well, my name, because it's so unique, is easy to find me. Uh, A-L-Y-S-S-A is my first name, Alyssa, D-V as in Victor, E-R. So that's easy enough. But Kick-Ass Confidence is the name of the book. AmericanConfidenceInstitute.com is our website. I welcome and, and love to hear from folks and their opinions as well as their experiences. So thank you, Ryan, for making that available. Awesome. Well, hey, this has been a lot of fun and I look forward to connecting with you and maybe we'll share the stage sometime. Who knows? Oh man, that would be awesome. I'd look forward to that. And I will make a post-it note cape for you as well. Oh, 
All right. So now I'm motivated. Love it. Love it. Thanks so much. All right. You have a great day and keep, keep changing the world. Uh, I I'm really inspired by what you're doing. And I think it's, it's not about self-confidence. It's about being confident that you can be yourself regardless of what anybody else thinks. I love it. I love that. Thank you so much. All right. Goodbye everyone. And it's not just goodbye. It is hello. If you click and you start another podcast here at the world of speakers, we find amazing people so that we can bring them to you. They give you insights. They give you tips, real life experience. So you don't have to make the same mistakes and you can do the same things that they did to help them find success. If you like this, which I hope you did definitely subscribe, leave us a review, let us know. And your review, I'm going to add to my confidence folder for a confidence card and I might just peek at it before I go up on the stage in my post-it note cape to save the world. Alyssa, thanks for listening because you did a good job of listening because you let me talk, which makes me feel good. And this is good. You're good at what you do. I love it. (laughs) All right. We'll talk to you later. Adios, everybody.